Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books, and check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. Finding Well Spouse saved my life. It did. It gave me, I think most importantly, it gave me the community, but it also gave me a language to talk about mm. the experience I was having that I didn't have access to prior to finding it. That was Laurel Whitman, president of the Well Spouse Association. Laurel focuses on support for younger well spouses as her husband, Eduardo, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when he was 24 years old. In this episode, we focus on caregiving, especially long-term caregiving what that journey has been like, and what saved her life. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Laurel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you're the president of a peer caregiver support organization called Well Spouse. But before we get into all of that, tell us more about yourself. Like, who is Laurel Whitman? Well, it's a terrific question, and I'm glad you ask it, because sometimes the caregiving role can feel so all-consuming. Um, so I'm in my early 40s. I'm a wife. I'm a full-time worker outside of my well spouse role. I like to putter around in my garden when I have free time. I watch too much binging, you know, too much TV. I drink too much Diet Coke. Um, you know, and it's a lot of trying to hold things together, right? I, like I think all of us are doing, especially in the wake of, um, you know, difficult few years. So your, how did your, this idea of the caregiver, if I can call you that, a caregiver mm -hmm. journey, how did that start? It started with your husband, right? It did. That's right. Yes. My husband is, uh, his name is Eddie. He's about 49 years old now. He was diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS when he was about 23. And we met when he was 28. So he had already gotten the diagnosis and had been through, you know, some of that difficult time of what's going on and <laughs> something's not right and, and was very young and trying to get established. And we met when he was still working full-time, you know, when I didn't have, you couldn't tell he had MS unless he got very tired, you know, or he, he had a couple of drinks and then he might stumble a little bit more. Um, so when we met, you know, on my third date with him, I think he told me, you know, I've got to tell you something. We were watching West Wing, actually, and it was the uh, the president on West Wing, if you remember, he had an MS diagnosis and he was like, well, I've got to tell you, I do too. I have MS. And wow. my answer in that moment was, well, that's fine. We'll figure it out. I, you know, in hindsight, um, you know, so it really, so the entire time I've known him, he's had it, I've known he has it, and it's colored the entirety of our marriage, and it's been, you know, almost 20, 23 years now. Wow. And it must have been, sorry, it must have been so hard for him to tell you. To oh, tell me, like, yeah. You know, coming out of when the closet I... with, with a mm -hmm. progressive illness. Yeah, no, and, and that I think is really common with people who have this condition, especially in a lot of these conditions when they're young, and um, mm -hmm. it can be very scary to disclose mm -hmm. that, and, you know, he didn't have a sense yet for what was coming, but, mm -hmm. you know, he had more of a sense than I did, I, you know, it's, mm -hmm. you just don't know what it's going to be like, and yeah, it's a tough moment. 
do you think he told you on the third date because he didn't want to get to know you and fall deeper in love with you if you were going to be scared away? <laughs> I would like to think so. Yeah, I, I the moment was certainly right, right? With the, the TV show presenting like that perfect yeah. teachable moment mm -hmm. in a scenario. But yeah, that's probably right. You know, he's a pretty forthright person anyway. I think I am too. And, and you know, there's probably a sense he would have been hiding something important the longer mm -hmm. it went. So I'm glad he told me. Um, it definitely was tough in those early months, though. I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I had a couple of friends say, you know, you don't have to do this, you know, mm -hmm. like as things were progressing. And he did start accumulating some disability, you know, a little bit more quickly than mm -hmm. and in hindsight, actually, there were some symptoms like cognitive symptoms mm -hmm. that we didn't realize were cognitive symptoms, you know, mm -hmm. and so it led to some frustration, right, in our relationship. And um, a couple of friends were like, you don't have to keep going with this. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad for a number of reasons. It's made me a very different person being on this journey mm -hmm. um, with him and, and on my own journey. Mm -hmm. But you, I, I like who I am now. <laughs> you said that he had it for a few years before mm -hmm. um, you met him. Mm -hmm. uh, and you also said that he wasn't you know, he wasn't completely clear about how things would unfold. Mm -hmm. Is that because his style is one where he doesn't really look too far into the future. He's not a super seeker or future gazer. He sort of lives <laughs> in the moment. Yeah. You know, he's even now he's got this, I don't know how to describe it. There's just a, there's a stoic thing without being intentionally stoic. I, he wouldn't describe it as that, but that's how it reads to me that, yeah, I'm the emotional one. And I would have been, you know, looking out too far ahead and, <laughs> and panicking, mm -hmm. you know, in the moment. And he's just, his, he says this a lot, even now, say la vie, this is life. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? It, it's not, I may not like where I am. I might not like what's happening, but say la vie, you can't, can't be changed. So we'll just go along with it. And that's really, I admire it. I don't, I don't understand it at all. <laughs> it is what it is. And it is his, what it is. His <laughs> approach uh, to a certain degree probably keeps you buoyed up because, mm -hmm. you know, of the unintentional stoicism, but mm -hmm. So did you go searching when you found out? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And do a yes. deep dive into it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. For years and years. And, you know, it's funny when I do these podcasts, sometimes people say, what advice do you have? And that's one of the pieces of advice I like to share is try to resist the urge to fix the problem. Try mm -hmm. to get to a place of acceptance earlier than I did. You know, that fixing mm -hmm. stage, I think, is everyone goes through it. It's so common. There's this feeling that this just isn't happening to me and I'm different mm -hmm. somehow. And, you know, mm -hmm. we just haven't figured out how to fix it. And it, it's avoidance, right? It's a form of avoidance mm -hmm. um, of accepting where you really are. And I can see now with hindsight, like I, I give that advice and I know I couldn't have taken it, <laughs> even mm -hmm. though I wish I had, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was a, you know, years and years of research that mm -hmm. somehow I would come up with the thing that you know, all the neurologists in the world, and all the, you know, yeah. I haven't figured out yet. It's a coping mechanism and it makes you feel less helpless. Right. It's a control thing. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, at what point did you feel like you, you label, you used the label of caregiver? Yeah, that's a really good question too. It was really far into the journey. And that's another thing I like to talk about now is that a lot of well spouses, which is the word we use, which incorporates both people who feel they're caregiving and people who maybe aren't feeling that they're caregiving, don't identify that way. Um, a lot of people just don't realize that they have started on a journey, um, you know, very early on. It really, 
from the get-go it started. You know, my husband's cognitive issues, for instance, led to trouble paying bills. He couldn't, you know, sit down and focus. And so I stepped in very early on to do that. I, I cleaned up his credit score, you know, and it wasn't, he didn't, he had the money, he was working, it was fine. He just couldn't, you know, that step, the executive function piece um, was just really tough for him. And, you know, that's one of those early caregiving steps that you don't recognize as such. I think a lot of us think of the doctor's appointments or changing somebody or, you know, providing more medically oriented care. But those, you start taking those steps. And I think it's it's especially pronounced with spousal caregivers because so much of our roles are aligned anyway. So it doesn't really feel like I'm stepping in for Eddie. It feels like, well, one of the two of us has to pay these bills. So it's going to be me. <laughs> so I think spousal caregivers probably feel even less like caregivers mm -hmm. because they just feel like this is just what you do. It's part it's of the more, role. It's more blurred. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned you've been married for 23 years. It's a long time that you've been caring. Like, I'm kind of curious, how has the experience been like over time? I mean, that's kind of a big question, but uh, yeah. were there highs, were there lows, were there different parts? Like, how would you describe the different milestones or the different chapters yeah. of that? Yeah, I do think that that period of trying to fix things was one era of the journey. Um, there was an era in the middle um, where I was utterly drowning, which I think is when I would say I felt more, most like a caregiver or started to feel that that transition. And I, I felt unmoored was the word I kept using. Like, you know, all of the things I, I thought were true in my life were suddenly not true. Like, does it make sense to continue throwing myself into my work if I'm going to have to impoverish myself to get the care my husband needs and you know so a lot of these questions you know big life questions um you know started kind of falling in on us um falling in on me and 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 he has um you know mood changes are not unknown with ms and a lot of neurological diseases as well and so it was the collision of kind of those two things that his needs were increasing his mood was changing and you know i was kind of losing track of who i was um, that was, those were very difficult years. And that is when I found Well Spouse. That's when I started reaching out um, to get help. And I, I wish it had happened earlier, um, but that's when it happened. And then the last few years, I think we've gotten to a place where I, I feel like I'm at acceptance most days that I have a different marriage than I expected to have, but I'm not fighting that. And there is a lot of joy in it. Um, it's, you know, the whole thing, though, is the most difficult thing I've ever done. Um, the whole start to finish. It's it it has made me a different person. Um, but it's only probably in the last four or five years that I I feel OK about that, <laughs> mm -hmm. I guess. Because how many years has it been? Yeah. So, I mean, he, he basically started declining right after we started dating. So yeah. by the time we were married, he had gone from which was only three years. He had gone from walking to being in a wheelchair full time mm -hmm. and he's needed 24 hour care for 13 years now. Mm -hmm. And he really needs 24 hour care with, you know, access to, you know, people who can hear monitors at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's intense. It's very intense caregiving. So if you um, look over the pattern of his illness, because you have described the sort of the different chapters that you went through as a caregiver wife, mm -hmm. um, a well spouse, yeah. Um, can you describe, you know, the, the chapters of MS? 
Yeah, so for him, he had the most common diagnosis of MS, which is relapsing remitting. It's what I think 90% of people start with. And then most people do transition to secondary progressive MS, which mm -hmm. is a, you know, characterized by fewer ups and downs and just a steady progression. And he got there very quickly. He was diagnosed mm -hmm. before some of the, the better meds are out. Mm -hmm. um, so his progression was, I think, it was probably a little more rapid. Uh, it often is for men, um, mm -hmm. a little more rapid than the average MS patient. But, you know, it was, he, he was fine and there would be ups and downs and he'd take mm -hmm. steroids and kind of bounce back. And then mm -hmm. he didn't bounce back to 100%. You know, he bounced back to 90 and then 80. Mm -hmm. And then at some point it was just this kind of consistent slide where you don't have the ups and downs. And then in recent years, uh, and this is typical in, in late stage MS, he um, he's very prone to infections related mm -hmm. to to the disease itself. And so it, the MS actually, you know, it's kind of done all the damage it's probably going to do at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. It's this constant infection cycle that, that we fight with, um, you know, and, and early on he was, he had some cognitive challenges as part of the disease and, and they're mm -hmm. more prominent now. So, mm -hmm. but I think they've also made, maybe that plus the lack of energy has made you know, the mood changes take a lot of energy and he doesn't have that, <laughs> that energy now. So he's, he's a softer person than he, he started in some so ways. We have not had someone on our podcast uh, who can speak to this illness MS mm -hmm. actually. Um, so I think it's going to be very interesting for the listeners uh, mm -hmm. when you describe what it's like to have MS at the different mm -hmm. chapters and to care for someone with MS. So what I'm hearing is your husband, Eddie, has the relax, relaxing, no, not relaxing, <laughs> the opposite. nothing's yeah. relaxing, relapsing, <laughs> yeah, relapsing and yeah. remitting where mm -hmm. it was quite a yo-yo for a while when That's he right. was having, let's just say an exacerbation, exactly. he would be treated with steroids to try to get it under control. And you would hope that he would return to his baseline, um, right. and get, get through the, um, relapse. Uh, mm -hmm. and then at some point, the steroids weren't doing the same. You didn't get as big bang for your buck and it was less of a yo-yo and just started to look downward. Um, right. when, and that's when you knew he was in the secondary progressive form and now you're calling it advanced or did you say late terminal? stage advanced? Yeah. Late stage yeah. advanced. You MS. can use all those words. Yeah. Yeah. So is that scary for you? And do you oh, know it's how terrifying? Well? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, it, it's yes, it's immensely terrifying. Um, you know, and, and every time he goes into the hospital with an infection now we have, you know, every time he ends up in the ICU, we have quality of life discussions, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we try and call in resources that can help us with that. And, uh, you know, trying to walk that line between his wishes and what's realistic and practical for somebody who's at such an advanced state of disease and, you know, I'm cognizant of the limitations of medical technology, even though mm -hmm. I don't like the limitations, you know, mm -hmm. so we have a lot of very difficult discussions, you yeah. know, even for kind of average infections. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, because um, it's interesting what you said, the MS has done its damage, it's mm -hmm. taken away his mobility, and his mm -hmm. strength. Um, and he's now bedridden, did you say? Yeah, or real, yeah. yeah bedridden. Mm -hmm. yep. And mm -hmm. so the MS and their cognitive decline is right. Well. So yep. physical and cognitive functional decline, but what's right. going to eventually uh, throw a, um, a, you know, a hook in the storyline is infection, whether because anyone who is bedridden is susceptible, whether you're bedridden with Parkinson's or bedridden with ALS, you sort of converge right. and all become 
part of a similar bedridden at risk patient population. Yeah. 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 In fact, nowadays when he goes to the hospital, doctors will often ask before they look at the record, does he have ALS? It looks, his, his presentation now is more typical of, of that kind of disease than, you know, what yeah. MS patients look like now. Yeah. So. so given all the changes that are happening over time, what does advanced care planning look like? So mm-hmm. about six years ago, we had the really terrible discussions of, you know, what do you want your life to look like if X or Y happens? And, mm-hmm. you know, he already had advanced MS at that time. And so mm-hmm. he was making some of those decisions, all those decisions with the knowledge of what the likely event, you know, would be that he'd be having mm-hmm. to deal with. And, you know, we're still acting in in reliance on those documents. And, yeah. you know, we're still trying to navigate and make sure that his his current wishes, you know, align with what he what he wants. But it's tough. And I think a lot of doctors, and I know you're I'm cognizant that you're both <laughs> in the medical profession, but okay. it, it is very tough for me to feel like I I'm sometimes advocating for you know, his quality of life looks mm-hmm. one way from the outside. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware I can be too close to it to be mm-hmm. impartial, but I, I really am very sensitive to what his quality of life is I, as much as I can be. So how do you measure your own quality of life and where does that mm-hmm. fit into his documents and decision-making and. Uh... Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, you know, I, I said earlier that being in a bit of a place of acceptance, I do feel joy in a way I, I didn't for a number of years there in the middle um, I do feel in some ways I'm along for the ride because of his wishes, mm-hmm. as, I, as I've shared. Um, you know, they're not necessarily the decisions I would make, but I think these are the decisions he wants. And so, you know, we will keep fighting infections and go, mm-hmm. having hospital stays until mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. Um, but it, so I, I do, f- uh, <laughs> let me say it this way. I think I'm probably an the best case scenario for spousal caregiving. Mm-hmm. I'm still able to work. I have mm-hmm. financial resources for care to help me. Mm-hmm. You know, I have aid coverage at the moment, so I, I can travel sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. I have tremendous family support. Mm-hmm. I don't say all this to brag I mm-hmm. to other caregivers, yeah. but I say it's still the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And finding joy has sometimes felt elusive. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and that's the best case scenario. You know, I have all of these resources around me. And so it it is really tough to hold on to pieces of yourself. But I I do take, I am able to find joy in my own life, mm-hmm. you know, around these hospital stays. I, I don't th- I don't think it's bragging. I actually think that you are sharing the ingredients uh to keep yourself buoyed up. Um, yeah, it's just or, it can be really yeah. tough for other people to find them. Yeah. Like I am very much dependent on my employer and my family and you yeah. know the ability to find care, my location, it all plays yeah. into and I I'm fortunate that I'm at a crossroads of all of those things that make this life possible. People say that we shy away from talking about um intimacy mm-hmm. when it comes to progressive illness. Uh, mm-hmm. For well spouse, do you guys discuss that? Is that something that's an elephant in the room, or does it come yes. out as discussion? <laughs> no, we do discuss it. Um, it is, I think, it is the thing that brings people in, and it it breaks my heart how um, how shamed people feel about expressing mm-hmm. these needs in their within their marriage, and they can't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they. And there's a whole variety of reasons, right? It's not just, I mean, taking this step back 
early on when when I was still, you know, having an intimate relationship with with uh, my husband, you know, the MS Society's handouts were, you know, just find new ways of doing it. But they didn't mm-hmm. talk at all about the fact that you might very well be different people. Like somebody who's having cognitive issues mm-hmm. doesn't really feel like the person you started with in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. So you could have, mm-hmm. you know, at some extreme, you've got you know, somebody who has uh, dementias or Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. you know, they are totally a different person. Mm -hmm. And there isn't an easy way to overcome that. And Mm -hmm. then you add in, you know, some conditions have hypersexuality Mm -hmm. as a a symptom of disease. And, you know, there's no way you want to have an intimate relationship with your partner Mm -hmm. when they're exhibiting those behaviors. Mm -hmm. We don't shy away from it. It is, it's absolutely something that you know, mm-hmm. I want people to bring to our organization because mm-hmm. it, it's really that is the one thing that distinguishes spousal caregiving from other relationships is the loss mm-hmm. of that intimate relationship mm-hmm. in many cases. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a perfect segue, Laurel. You mentioned the organization you lead, WellSpouse. Please tell us more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So WellSpouse is a 35-year-old nonprofit. Um, We focus entirely on the partners, the spouses of people who are living with chronic illness or disability. Um, We are disease agnostic. We are uh, stage agnostic. And what I mean about both of those things is, you know, you can come with any disease that is impacting your relationship or impacting you personally. That might be mental illness. It can be cancer. Um, Neurodegenerative disease is our largest category. Um, And it's the memory disorders and uh, cancer and cardiovascular cardiovascular disease kind of from there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're seeing patients with long COVID or patients whose partners have mm-hmm. long COVID start to join us. Um, so we're disease agnostic, we're stage agnostic. We have people who are still, you know, very much in the diagnosis stage of their illness. Maybe they have mm-hmm. an unusual presentation and, and it doesn't line up with, with any diseases um, that we know now, all the way to people who are, you know, years and years into, into a disease process. And we have a number of people whose partners, um, you know, maybe were in an accident of some mm-hmm. kind or a, a robbery victim in one, you know, mm-hmm. in one case. Um, so it, however you find yourself uh, you know, in need of this kind of support, we want to be there for it. Mm-hmm. And our model is one of, of peer support. So we aren't run by professionals. We are, uh, we have a small staff. It's otherwise run by volunteers, but it's people who are in the trenches as caregivers or well spouses, you know, providing comfort and resources and guidance mm-hmm. to other caregivers in that same mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. And so. So, so if I'm understanding right, the most yeah. of the supports that you offer, uh, when you say peer supports, it is mostly, mm-hmm. um, I guess information, it's having someone who has walked that journey with you or is walking that journey, right. the same journey who can find help you f- navigate this mm-hmm. this process. Is that is that yeah. right? It's not really offering specific um, home yeah. care services or anything like that. It's right. More- no, that's right. Yep. It's um, and I like to think, you know, we at least, you know, we're primarily US focused, although we have a number of uh, of Canadian members as well. Um but with 50 states and 50 different systems, we're too small to provide, you know, those kind of direct hands-on resources. Instead, it's, you know, how can we help you on this journey? You know, this will sound cheesy, but to live your best life. Mm-hmm. This is probably going to be the hardest thing you've ever done, but how can we take some of that burden off and build a community around you that can support you? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways I think we are a little different than other organizations. You know, there are a lot of support groups out there, but we have support groups that have run for years and years on end. You know, I my needs are different than they were five years ago, but I still mm-hmm. wanted that continuity. I didn't want a six-week program, you know, that mm-hmm. might run again next year. Like I need mm-hmm. 24-hour support mm-hmm. and I need different support at different different times. 
Mm. Yeah. So what you really are talking about is building a community. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's like, it's a community there. Mm-hmm. And, right. and how has that community, you sort of alluded to it, but how mm-hmm. has, how did finding that community change in what ways yeah. did it change, support you? What ways did it um, change the experience? Yeah. So we hear this a lot and I will echo it that mm-hmm. finding well spouse saved my life. It did. It gave me, I think most importantly, it gave me the community, but it also gave me a language to talk about mm-hmm. the experience I was having that I didn't have access to prior to finding it. And so what I mean by that is, you know, in those those kind of middle years that we talked about, that middle phase, really, I was just a ball of anxiety. And I didn't realize I was really feeling grief and losses. And, <laughs> you know, there were, I was having trauma. I was facing trauma from this experience of, mm-hmm. you know, a frankly, a relationship that in any other context you might consider abusive, but he mm-hmm. needed care and I had to provide it. Somebody had to provide it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it gave me all these other words to put to the experience. And mm-hmm. even as we said, you know, naming myself as a caregiver, that was mm-hmm. a big step. You know, I was, mm-hmm. what, 35 years old. <laughs> Nobody mm-hmm. feels like they're going to be in that role, mm-hmm. um, you know, at that that age. And so, putting these words around the experience Mm -hmm. I was having was really powerful. I think just talking about it, right. It's not something that comes up in casual conversation and Mm -hmm. it's, we often, you know, we wear masks, a lot of us as caregivers, you know, we Mm -hmm. talk about in our meetings, a lot about this, that the, how are you question is -hmm. so tough for us to answer, Mm -hmm. you know, like, do you want the real story or do you want to just hear that things are generally okay? (laughs) You know? And so having a place to go where we could say, you know, things are really not okay Mm -hmm. and have people understand um, Mm -hmm. was absolutely invaluable. There's an invitation to be um, genuine and just authentically you, uh, and you don't have to protect other people from the answer to how are you, which is I'm not great. And then they run away. (laughs) Right. So, right. Exactly. yeah, the people at Wellspouse will stay there while you explain really how are you? Um, they're not going right. to run away. They're they're going to lean in instead of um, leaning out. Yeah. Right. I loved how you talked about the community and uh, the cha- the language. And in many ways, that's the link to the waiting room revolution. And I know that you followed us mm-hmm. on our podcast early on. And as mm-hmm. you know, we have a book that's coming out that's trying to, that's out. Mm-hmm. This will be aired then. So this, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, we have a book that's, uh, that's yeah. out now, um, trying to give people the language and through these seven keys of, you know, mm-hmm. walking two roads and zooming out. So I'd love to hear your reactions of when you heard about the Waiting Revolution, the podcast, and what we're trying yeah. to do with the movement. Yeah. Um, how did that mm-hmm. connect with your work at Wellspouse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, what I, what jumped out to me was hearing you all say that you've heard over and over through your research over the years that people say, why didn't anyone tell me about this? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it's like what I said earlier about the intimacy piece that people come to, with such shame to this mm-hmm. situation. You know, we've, we hear a lot about people who who feel guilty about the feelings they're having and I'm like mm-hmm. they're just feelings you just mm-hmm. you got to kind of work through them right yeah. it's it's when you don't work through them that that they they interfere with your life in a, a big ways um so yeah I think that's one of the pieces that well spouse you know where it dovetails nicely with what you all are doing it's mm-hmm. it's to help people figure out things earlier on and put words to the experience they're having I think Mm -hmm. that's so important um you know I 
it resonates, of course, too, just, yeah, knowing what's coming. Mm-hmm. And that's another place because we are stage agnostic. You can kind of see mm-hmm. people do survive this, you know, and in fact, we have, you know, part of our community is made up of what they call formers. And those are people who have lost their spouse. Generally, their spouse will have passed. Mm-hmm. And we want them to stay in our community too, both because they're not done processing this experience yeah. they've had, mm-hmm. but because they show us the next steps that are coming and can mm-hmm. give some of us, give us hope along the way. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. unlike some of the other progressive life limiting illnesses that have an average life expectancy of, I don't know, anywhere from two years to 20 years, but the MS journey can be quite long. Um, long, And that makes the caregiver journey very long as well. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I have had to read up on MS, I think what I read was that it might shorten a person's life by six to nine years, seven uh, years. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, uh, it doesn't, but I mean, that's very different than some of the other illnesses like ALS will shorten your life in a much bigger way. Right. Um, right. but I was going to back to what I was going to say before, you know, mm-hmm. I think I actually have only cared for one person with MS in the 19 years of home-based palliative care. Um, I mean, I think part of it is because we just don't identify these people as we are able to identify people declining from cancer or the illness trajectory is so long and shallow that you can't pick up when, oh, we need someone now. Um, So it's like the colors of a rainbow. We just (laughs) go from one color to a next with no real signal. Oh, you know, so why do you think that I don't see people with MS? Where are I they? Think, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right about that. I um, First, hopefully the better drugs nowadays mean you will see fewer of them. Um, but, you know, even in Eddie's journey, right, which is at probably a more extreme end of the, the MS uh, progression and stories in that it, he was diagnosed very young and accumulated disability fairly quickly. Um, we didn't involve palliative care until probably four or five years ago. And then I think it was really because we wanted access to medical marijuana, which had just opened up in our state. That was the only reason. Um, I'm a huge proponent of bringing in those resources earlier. Um, it seems there's a supply constraint, I think, you know, there just aren't enough providers to help with that. And, you know, I, I think you've said before, I've seen you say that, you know, every doctor needs to be trained in this, right? There really shouldn't be a specialty. It should be just something that is care provided along the way, but we're not there yet, I think. Um, And then I think there's a lot of confusion around, you know, palliative care and hospice. People Mm -hmm. think that they are interchangeable and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're very different. But when I describe palliative care, you know, to our members or to people who are looking for guidance, I think of it in terms of, you know, when you have symptoms in the context of illness that are disruptive to your life, palliative care people are the people who can help you figure that out. And it doesn't cost much to involve them early on. And if you don't need them right away, you know they're there and you know what they do offer. Hmm. So I'm I'm a big proponent and much earlier than certainly we found it. Do you ever think about your life after? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's having been in emergency situations with him a number of times, you know, it's hard not to reflect a little bit about what that looks like. And, and, you know, I have seen other caregivers going through it, you know, and so, and um, 
you know, the average age of the spousal caregiver is going to typically be older. That's one of the reasons I did get involved with WellSpouse was mm-hmm. a selfish interest in finding people <laughs> similar in age to me. Yeah. That's right. And to, to bring them into the organization, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I don't know that how I will react will look different in my probably my 40s to somebody who's in their 60s or 70s. So mm-hmm. I think about that as well. Yeah. Uh, some caregivers have shared with me how guilty they feel that they uh, that their mind wanders into afterwards yeah. and and sometimes they feel even more guilty when they think about that it will bring some relief. Relief. Yeah. Yeah. No, I and that's it's you know, we try and normalize that in our community that mm-hmm. it is really okay to feel relief afterwards. It's okay yeah. to think about afterwards. It's okay to wish it were over, even mm-hmm. though, you know, for these progressive diseases, there's only one way it's over, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And those are very difficult ideas to sit with if you're doing it alone in kind of mm-hmm. the society we have nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you can start talking about that and raising it, you know, saying it out loud, <laughs> saying it first to yeah. yourself and then saying yeah. it out loud. Um, that's how you, I think, get some comfort and peace with it, really. What you're really doing at WellSpouse is so important because the system really focuses on the patient, but not so much on the family and the carers who do 95% of the work outside of the hospital. And it's the informal caregivers who need support too. And we at Waiting Room Revolution are trying to provide more information to caregivers and earlier. Yeah, I I have to think anything that provides more of a roadmap than most people have is helpful. I mean, that's, in fact, there's research that I was looking at recently that says that about spousal caregivers in particular. They want more information on the tangible resources, caregiving, respites, et cetera. They want more emotional support, which is really a piece that we are stepping in to provide. And they want more financial support, which who knows? I don't, <laughs> I would love to say that's going to be a problem that's fixed, but at mm-hmm. least in the US, probably not, mm-hmm. not for a while anyway. So yeah, anything that provides more, more guidance, you know, because right now, the patient themselves, if they're fortunate to have a partner that is, you know, participating in helping with their care or other supports, um, you know, they are the ones who have to knit together this whole life. Yeah. You know, doctors are overworked. You get, you know, 10 minutes at best. Mm-hmm. You know, even your primary care provider is going to struggle to put the pieces together for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now, at least in the U.S., you've probably are familiar with this idea that patients can access their notes immediately, which mm-hmm. is great. You know, medical mm-hmm. notes on, on Epic and the other various mm-hmm. software Uh, systems. That's terrific. More information is always helpful, but there isn't anyone helping us figure it out, right? (laughs) And so, and I know, you know, we're driving doctors crazy because we're asking questions and you guys don't Mm -hmm. have time for that, you know, so everyone is stretched too thin. Mm -hmm. Um, So anything that can help, you know, put these pieces together. You know, when I was looking through your seven steps, I was struck by one in particular. I have a, a very dear friend who has very advanced cancer and she has absolutely put this team around her and she's assigned each of us roles Mm -hmm. and when I when I saw that step about building you know your support network and your your community right (laughs) around you I thought of of her and Mm -hmm. you know she very tangibly has you know she Mm -hmm. has her chief communications person who sends out the emails to everyone I am her chief researcher because my (laughs) day job I spend a lot of time reading research and you know Mm -hmm. with Eddie's experience I've obviously (laughs) done a lot of medical stuff Um, she's got the person coordinating the food you know so building like finding, you know, we all don't have these skills. It's finding your village and putting those pieces in place is so important. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is the ideal situation, right? It is. is yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah. it's hard for a lot of people to find yeah. that it, mm-hmm. you know, even simple, you know, if you live in a very rural community where you're mm-hmm. far away from your neighbors, you know, mm-hmm. that's a very different experience than, you know, where I can run next door and <laughs> get mm-hmm. somebody to step in if I need it. Yeah, sure. But yeah. at least we're telling people that at some point, it's mm-hmm. helpful to act it, we call it activate your village. And it's about mm-hmm. connecting mm-hmm. the dots, right? How do you, mm-hmm. to, you know, so that people know how to, to, to connect all this information and make it work. Mm-hmm. But I think yep. to add to the things that, you know, caregivers are looking for, I think they, yeah. what we are offering really is informational support, because I mm-hmm. think what we're able to, mm-hmm. to do is, is to share ways that, or the tips that as sort of insiders or people who have seen this a lot mm-hmm. um, on how you can ask questions so that it will reveal the meaning making. It's not, an, it's mm-hmm. not that helpful actually to have tons and tons of medical information. Right. It's, what does that mean for the... my life? <laughs> Yeah. How right. does that, what is that going to mean for my life, for the quality right. of myself, my, 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 uh, the patient, my partner, all of these things like that, making sense of it. And what do I right. do with that is, is the information piece that I think, well, I hope that we're going to try and do with, with our book and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, we can partner with Wellspouse and, and mm-hmm. do some events together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that'd be wonderful. When I think about, yeah, what does this social movement slash revolution slash seven keys, whatever mm-hmm. we want to call it. <laughs> yeah. What what does it offer? I would I would agree, Sian, that um it it helps fill the gap of informational uh needs. Uh and I think it also therefore, if it's done early on, offers a sense of time and mm-hmm. uh a rhythm to the illness that doesn't feel mm-hmm. as crisis driven. Mm-hmm. But yeah. if we can offer people information, tell them how to extract it from the healthcare system. Uh, you get information and then you weave that into proactive planning and that affords you time. Um, information mm-hmm. will also allow you to begin the grieving process, which is protective anticipatory grief. As you face multiple losses, you mm-hmm. steady yourself and steal yourself uh, mm-hmm. to eventually deal with you know the, the biggest losses if you have real, honest Mm -hmm. information. If everyone's in la-la land, then the illness (laughs) feels more unsteady, uh, reactive, Mm crisis-driven, unmoored is what you said, and feels almost like Mm -hmm. a sudden death experience. Uh, Instead of, no, this, yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, we're always talking about waiting for a shoe to drop, you know, which is just not any way to, to live your best life. Yeah. always waiting for some catastrophe to happen yeah. and it and it offers people control so right. there's nothing worse than feeling out of control that you're neither here nor there uh uh you know limboville you know and right. and i can imagine in ms though because it's such a long illness you feel mm-hmm. like you're in a perpetual limbo yeah so and it's it's even you know, I think a lot of diseases have this, um, this characteristic, but MS in particular is known as a snowflake disease because your disability is tied to where lesions are. And you can have one really poorly placed lesion that makes you totally paralyzed. And you can have dozens of others, you know, my MRI looks like a Christmas tree is something people with MS will say, but they have no, no issues, you know? And so it's even hard across the the disease is, is -hmm. very, uh, very heterogeneous. So it, yeah. there isn't that easy map to what is my life going to look like. So there's there's this average um, storyline that we talked about, but then there's the individual snowflakes, and right. you can't know exactly how your mm-hmm. individual course 
but still helpful to see the big picture in the long view. I think the major milestones. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. So we've talked a lot about what caregiving and how you have been giving, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as a partner to your husband, Eddie, is there anything that you would say that caregiving that role has given to you? Yeah, it, it has made me, it's made me able to sit with people in pain in a way that I never could before. I think a lot of us shy away from reaching out to people who are grieving or reaching out to people who are in difficult situations because we're afraid we'll say the wrong thing or, you know, we won't respond right or is it too soon to reach out or too late or, you know, you talk yourself out of acting Mm -hmm. and this experience has, has given me a lot of confidence to listen and not talk Mm -hmm. and just be with people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if somebody wants some guidance or, you know, some of my brainstorming ideas, I'm happy to Mm -hmm. do that. But I think I'm better prepared to handle um, difficult situations than I ever was. It's Mm -hmm. funny, it really, it has given me a real confidence. Um, It also has made, it makes me feel a little out of sync with the real world too, in a lot of ways, because Mm you know, a lot of people's problems sometimes can feel trivial <laughs> when you're, you know, dealing with ICU stays and, mm-hmm. and the like. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I like to think the takeaway of that is I am tuned into the important things, mm-hmm. I think, for my life and my husband's life and mm-hmm. and what we need, you know, to, to live well, as well as we can. You know what, it's funny you say that, because first of all, I think that's so eloquent. Um, but you. when I was you know, boo-hoo, not feeling well before the taking this podcast. <laughs> I had a little chills and maybe a fever. I thought to myself, you know what? Buck up. You are <laughs> about to meet someone, you know, who would be happy to be sitting in my situation with a little bit and, and of a fever. I, yeah. I say that too, you know, even now, and when I'm, I had COVID recently and I had yeah. to, it, three weeks ago, and I had to go stay at a hotel away from my husband so that he hopefully wouldn't get it. He had just come out of an ICU with yeah. respiratory issues. So, yeah. and you know, I was alone having 103 degree fevers in a hotel room and it was terrifying. Yeah. Right. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like, when I think of all the things Eddie has gone through, like I can do this this I can handle. So yeah. I get strength, you know, in, in knowing what he can handle, that humans are are capable of amazing resiliency, even when it doesn't feel like it. Totally. So. And this is why when people say, oh, you have the hardest job, uh, you know, I say to myself, you have no idea. Every day I get to meet people like Laurel and you walk away just amazed, um, with admiration and you reflect on your own life and Mm -hmm. could I do it and what's important, what's not important. So there is this vicarious personal growth that Mm -hmm. happens, you know, when you're doing this kind Kind of of reflective (laughs) nature of what you're seeing. I love how you were describing before, just, I feel like this experience for you has made you feel less helpless, uh, Mm -hmm. that you feel a sense of agency. Um, mm-hmm. And I love what you said about being able to just be present and mm-hmm. stay the course and lean in and you don't have to have a solution and right. an answer for everything, but it's better not to run away and avoid. So yeah. thank you for sharing that with our um, listeners. I think this has been an incredible podcast, to be honest with you. We've talked about so many <laughs> Tough topics. topics. Your yeah. questions are great. And I, I, I feel like you've been so um, honest with us. I really appreciate that, Laurel. Yeah, thank you. I am happy to do it. And I think what you all are doing is fabulous. And I hope we can work together. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on our podcast, Laurel. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsap.